If you live anywhere in northwest Montana, you're familiar with the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, a beautiful set of acres, millions of acres, up over the Thwan Range and coming in from the East of the Divide also. Well, today we're going to be talking about some of the adventures from the book, My Wilderness Life, that occur in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. Please join me and Morgan Ray, our library director, as we go ahead and do that. Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of Northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Our producer is Colin Burkhardt, and thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director for Offering Library as our podcast home. Thanks, John, for having me. I'm a big fan, and I'm very excited to be talking more in depth about specifically this book. So there may be some spoilers for people who haven't read the book yet, but I think it's a a great time to talk about kind of a, a very large spanning career in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. So with that being said, what was your favorite chapter in the book? Do you have one? Well, I think the one that advances, I guess, science the most would be the cutthroat chapter because mm-hmm. I popularized that. I published it in Northwest Science, the journal, but I popularized it for this book so everybody could, could see the information we collected and that kind of thing. And it's, it's special in a number of different ways. The, the headwaters of the South Fork of the Flathead form when Young's Creek and Danher Creek come together. And our listeners may have been to that spot. I know you had some friends that went to that spot, but it's a beautiful mm-hmm. place. And the cutthroat there are, and I'm going to make this statement because I know it's true, they're the oldest, largest, and purest West Slope cutthroat trout living in streams that we know of in the United States. And here's how we know that. So for 10 years, 11 years in a row, 12 years in a row, I hiked in there 25 miles and sampled about 100 to 150 cutthroat each year. You take scale samples from those cutthroat, and then you can age how old the fish are. Well, I also put these numbered tags on the cutthroat. And what was really interesting about that was I caught one, just I'll give you a couple examples. One of the cutthroats, so then you can tell the individual fish, right? So I'm catching them with hook and line, by the way, to mark these fish. And, and then you do this uh, age study and then and you send samples to the University of Montana for purity. And they're pretty much all pure, so that's great. But this one fish, first fish, for example, I caught him in 1991 and then I caught him in 1992. And then I caught them in 1993. I caught the same fish three years in a row. You know, they grow about an inch or two each year. The largest fish we caught in there was over 20 inches. So that, that's big for a cutthroat trout. And my, and my, my prize cutthroat, I haven't named him, but he, he's, he was close to me. Let's put it that way. I, I tagged him in 1988. Then I caught him again in 1990. So I knew at that point he was already eight years old. And so then I caught him again in 1994. And so I held this fish three times over an eight-year period. So it's just magical. I mean, can you imagine that? No, and it seems almost impossible mm-hmm. given 
the, the wilderness, the area, the exploration that you're trying to do. Reading that in the book, I was I was floored. I didn't realize that was even possible. I don't spend a ton of time fishing. And so for me, it was actually really informative to learn kind of what the count process looks like and the amount of work that goes into it on the biologist side to help us understand healthy population and thriving numbers. Another thing about that little side study, so I went on and became a fisheries administrator and not an outreach person. So it was not my direct full-time job to study cutthroat anymore after the first little part. And I remember one supervisor said, well, yeah, you can go ahead and keep doing it, but it's really not your job, you know, you're doing this. So I partly uh, volunteered for it, but he said, and he said, this is an example, as I can see, of excessive monitoring, he said. Well, he was so dead wrong because if I wouldn't have done it every year for 12 years, I wouldn't have had those priceless encounters with those fish. And no one would know how old they could get. That fish was 12 years old when I caught him the last time. Pretty incredible. So that's that's one of the highlights out of the book, I would say. And how long overall would you say you did the counts? You said from 1980. Well, yeah, from well, actually from 1985 to 1996, I did that 12 years in a row to typify that population. I didn't think it was over monitoring. And, you know, never would have gotten those aged cutthroat and all that if I would have just, you know, the typical grad study is like two years or something. Yeah. So you do it that long, you're going to get all those interest. Then I came back in 2010 and again in 2015 with different, and it's described in the book. We had, had some really fun, like we went down, back down the river, uh, 30 some miles in Kmart rafts, you know, because they were easy to take in. And it, and uh, we got laughed out all the way down, you know, but but it was very efficient. Yeah, so I went back in and checked, and they were still pure, and they were still the largest cutthroat. I mean, you know, you get cutthroat that average 12 inches and then go up to 20 inches. Those are big West Slope cutthroat trout. Large fish. And remember, they're indigenous fish. They've been there for thousands of years, same exact genetics. And, in fact, when Lewis and Clark went to the Falls of Missouri, they, they noticed cutthroat for the first time there. They're related to these ones that are on the west side there. So it's, it's quite a heritage and probably very little change genetically for, the, for thousands of years. And that was something I appreciated in your book is that you make all of this science very approachable to somebody who doesn't have that kind of knowledge. I found the book very informative while also still, you know, tugging at the heartstrings and bringing the readers kind of into your life as a, I'm going to call you a wilderness explorer, um, because to like me, that's that what it, that's what it felt like. And so while reading the book, I was also struck by how many places you return to time and time again, right? Terry's crash site, the different parts of the middle fork, but you say that there's only so much time in one life. If you could go back to any one place now, where would it be? Oh, great question. Well, I've, I've put the whole thing with Terry McCoy to rest. I mean, I've, you know, visited plane site for the last time and then it burned in a forest fire two years ago that was heartbreaking to read about by the way uh, that was that's <laughs> kind of tough because it sat there for almost 50 years and didn't burn yeah. and so when we walked away from it that last time we didn't know it was going to burn and then i would say his monument on on gray horse point and the place where the spirit elk fell because i still feel there was some weird thing going on there that my editor said i think a spirit whispered in your ear you know mm -hmm. but because he led us up that slope and I never heard the bugle and I could hear pretty well then I'm not as good at hearing now <laughs> but so that was mysterious but as far as going back I'm the kind of person that like my oldest son he likes to go to a different place every time and I don't know what you're like in the world whether you like to go to a, but I've been to so many places I don't mind going back to the same place I guess because it, they're part of me they're part of my being and, and so on and 
And this book allowed me to lay that out, as you have very perceptively figured out. I think I enjoy returning to places just because I can, every moment is a different memory. And so it's very nice to compare memories or the, where you were in your life. And a 50-year career in the Bob, there's a lot that you can trace back to. And they felt like very distinct moments in your life. You as a college student, you going there with your children when they were young, you traveling to those same areas with your children as adults. It was all nice to see that come together in the book. For a young person like you, I would, the advice I would give you is so many people, well, I've been to that lake before. I don't want to go again. But to me, and I think it was in the Eastern religion, you learn more from going climbing the same mountain 100 times than you do from climbing 100 mountains Ooh. one time each. Now that's pretty profound. Oh, but I when you go, you know, I've gone back to some places like 20 or 30 times, you know, over my 50 years in the wilderness. And it's always different. You always learn something else, you know. And just like the cutthroat, if I wouldn't have done that 12 years in a row and then follow up, I wouldn't have known there were fish that were 12 years old in there, you know. Well, and you mentioned that too when you're talking about the reds of the bullthroat. Mm -hmm. Uh, not bull trout. Um, yeah, bull trout reds. Bull trout reds, nests, yeah, yeah, the bull trout. Those reds that predictably over thousands of years, maybe, you've seen the reds come into the same places and you can kind of predict where it comes mm -hmm. and where they're going to build. So this is a little different from the book, but what, what three items for you are a must in the backcountry? What three mm -hmm. items do you always, always have with you? If you read the book, you, read, you, you know that twice I had to stay out because my flashlight conked out. <laughs> and one of the times, because I had snorkeled and it was wet, and, and so I had to, to sleep out under a tree in, in the late, you know, early fall. It's pretty cold. And therefore, I caught up with my crew at Black Bear Cabin, which you're familiar with where that mm -hmm. comes out. And then another time, it was in the Middle Fork when I was uh, counting reds up there in October. Couldn't get to a, the rest of my crew because my flashlight conked out. So number one, double great flashlights. <laughs> One really good headlamp. And check them because they, they can kind of corrode a little bit the batteries and they may not be always functional. Really good flashlight would be number one. Do you know, just aside from that, the advice I always heard was the best place to keep your spare batteries for a headlamp is in the second headlamp. I there can't remember go. where I heard that. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. So that would be one thing. Another thing would be, um, gosh, I, I, I know that somebody gave me this advice and it was pretty good, but you know, climbing a peak or something you're going to do. Like I always do my 30 mile hike in one day. I'm still doing it after I retired. I'm going to keep doing it till I can anymore. I'm 68 right now. We'll see. It's mainly it's been into Schaefer Meadows, but what I'll do is I'll leave a couple of cans of Coke when I go in so that I can drink them on the way out. And I got that, <laughs> I got that advice from a very prominent alpinist here. His name is Don Scharf. He used to own outdoor recreation shop downtown. Very wise, you know, climbed as many peaks as anybody and he gave us that advice when we were going to climb Mount Jackson in one day and it's it's so I guess take your favorite stuff that you like if you're going on a really long hike because it'll it'll help you it's familiar and it, it's it works for you your stomach and all that and you know you mentioned the other chapters like bull trout and so on bull trout are quite a species I mean they're they have the longest migration route of any inland trout so it was a real privilege to work with the bull trout so I'm still doing that I'm volunteering I used to wrap it up. What do you, what do you got? <laughs> okay. With 50 years experience in the Bob and a accomplished career as biologist, conservationist, what advice would you give to young people like myself coming up into a this kind of career? Mm -hmm. What What's your advice to them? Well, you got to love it to do it. I mean, if you love it, you'll be passionately involved in it. 
And I know the wilderness, the wilderness especially, was something I loved from the very beginning. And if, if it's something you're just doing for a job, it's too intense and too uncomfortable and too taxing. It's not like, well, I'll just do that for a job and then I'll do my other hobbies. It's, it's kind of the hobby. Yeah. If you're going to do it, you do it, it's your life work, you know. And so if you're passionate and you find yourself passionate in that way, follow your passion. Because there will be jobs. You'll be able to fi find jobs. And it may take you a while to get a permanent job like it did for me. But you just keep plugging away at it. And I think you actually, you live that advice well in the book because there's multiple instances where you talk about coming back in and taking a detour of a couple miles to go mm -hmm. check an extra creek or those kinds of things. And yeah. you really, <laughs> then you stay out all night because of it. That's, and that's, that's <laughs> your job, right? You slept outside with nothing because you wanted to go that little extra mile. Well, in White River interlude, that chapter, that was where I just was not going to, my crew wouldn't do it, but I must not do it. And I had to stay out. And I don't know if you remember the young woman packer mm -hmm. who was a pioneer then. That was 40 some years ago. And she was right in with the men. And she looked back at me when they were leaving, and I had, I, and she, what'd she do? She tossed the Snickers bar up in the air, and it landed on the trail. I didn't even know what she had done. I saw, did she just throw something? And, and I'm walking along, and they're already out of here, you know. And I, there's a Snickers bar in the middle of the trail, and I didn't have any food. So it was really neat. But those little items, those little surprises in the wilderness make it all worthwhile. And, and thanks a lot for reading the book so thoroughly. I, I really enjoyed it, John. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time.